Good morning. How's everyone doing? Good. My name is Eric. If you haven't met me, and I'd love to maybe answer any questions or get to know you after the service, uh, we'd love to give you a gift if you're new out in the Welcome Center in the courtyard, uh, answer questions and help you get connected to our church. Also, for those joining us online, there's a QR code you can snap and just hit I'm new, and I'll help you get connected to our church and just help you maybe understand anything you have a question about. Um, also, connection classes started today, and so whether you're in a connection class or, or not, we encourage you to be in a life group, a Bible study, some type of extra community where people can you know, pray with you, love you, help you go through God's Word, help you be accountable, and all those fun things as well. And then just save the day, February 5th, uh, Pastor Scott Aravandis will be coming to teach on family discipleship, so that'll be a fun time um, together. So... We just ended Romans. You guys excited? Yeah, that was a heavy book, wasn't it? It was a lot of fun to go through. And as we left chapter 16, hopefully you noticed there's this kind of key word in there. It said that, you know, it says, hey, keep watch. And then we just thought it'd be good just to take maybe three weeks to walk through the idea of keeping watch. It's a biblical term uh, that we're commanded to be aware, to watch, to watch our souls, to watch our faith. And uh, you'll see other words in the Bible that tell us to be ready, have a sober mind, and all of these things. And one of the reasons we thought this would be important or pertinent is one of the key things I kept hearing over probably the last two years were people saying, I was just so unprepared. I just felt like out of nowhere, my life changed, my friends changed, um, the church I was at changed. I just, I didn't realize how much I didn't know. And people just felt really caught off guard. And so what we want to do is start our year off right. is just having, looking in front of us, keeping watch over what's in front of us, that we could be faithful to what God calls us to and, and not be caught off guard. And we're ready to give an account, ready to give an answer for what God has and what God would call us to. And so we're going to pray and then we'll walk through this text on how it gets there. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your word. Um, we're thankful that you make it so clear for us to understand, and we're thankful for the timeless nature of your word, and that it's profitable, that it corrects us, it reproves us, it teaches us. So it's our prayer that your word would hold tight to our hearts, um, that you would teach us, encourage us, and, and most of all, help us fall more in love with you, that we would hide your word in our heart, that it'd be a lamp into our feet that would guide our path. And so lastly, we would just pray that these words would be yours and not mine. Uh, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so Timothy, we talked about getting, understanding the context. Uh, so Timothy, right here in chapter 4, there's 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, right? He's being addressed by Paul over and over again to be bold, to be courageous, to stand firm, to be strong. And so what we can kind of gather from the context is that Timothy is up against opposition, and he is now making a very strong declaration uh, to Timothy. Look how it starts. I charge you in the presence of God in Christ Jesus. So what he's saying, it's not just something I'm asking you, like God is telling you, you have to do this. So that tells me that maybe Timothy's a little afraid, he's a little scared, or he's unsure, he's uneasy. And so he comes out by saying, make no mistake, in front of God, you have to do this. So what's the thing he's asking him to do? Well, he's asking him to confront people who are going to not want sound teaching, which is what we see uh, in verses 3 and 4, and that aren't going to be sober-minded, 
and are going to want to scratch their itching ears. And so what's, what's interesting is back then is the same today. We don't love conflict. Most people don't love conflict, right? If you do, you're a rare breed and you probably need to be tamed down a little bit. But for the most part, we don't love conflict. We love to, oh, I love you. You're amazing. Uh, I'm just, oh, I'm so excited for you and the kids. And then, oh, I hate that guy. I can't believe that guy. That's typically how we do conflict when they're not listening or watching, correct? And so what you see is Timothy has this charge to address people that don't want sound teaching. And he's trying to encourage him. And this part should encourage us that he says it's who is to judge the living and the dead at the peering of his kingdom. Jesus is the one who says who goes to heaven and to hell. And so we don't bear that weight. We don't have to make that conclusion, but we do have to do the other part, which is he's saying, hey, you need to reprove, rebuke, and teach your church. And so if you think about it, if Timmy's, Timothy's doing that consistently, then the church would know what's correct, what's biblical, and be able to do the same. Is that fair? Yeah, all five of us agree. This is good. So if you're doing that in your church, it gives the people then the ability to see, okay, what's false, what's wrong, what's bad? Why do I bring this up? Do you know when I get the most complaints about from sermons? It's actually not tithing. It's when we talk about other pastors errant teaching. People flip out if you mess with their podcast. They really do. You, you've destroyed their idol, their, the one they cherish, or their book club, whatever it is. You've messed with that. You've messed with something. And what you're going to see is Timothy's told to rebuke, reprove, and correct. And Paul's very specific in this, and he even encourages him. I want you to look at the, the nature of this. 1 Timothy 4, 12 through 15. Again, he's encouraging Timothy. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity. Until I come, catch this, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture exhortation, and teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have which was given to you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that they all might see your progress. Notice, what does he tell Timothy? Devote yourself to the scripture, the exhortation, the teaching, and then here he says the rebuking, the reproving, and the teaching of, and the correcting of. That's pretty specific, isn't it? Okay, so it's saying if you come to church, you think it's in Timothy, he's telling them how to set up a church, right? This is what a biblical elder looks like. This is what a deacon looks like. It's the older minister to the younger. And he's setting it up. And he's saying in a church, you teach the word of God. It rebukes, it corrects. So if you're coming to church, the Bible should be taught and it should hurt a little. Because a rebuke, that doesn't always feel good, does it? No. And so if not, one of two things is going wrong. Either you're not hearing it right or the preacher is not doing his job. The word of God corrects us. It's what it's supposed to do. And what this text is saying, there's going to be people who don't want to come to church and they don't want to be corrected. They want those itching ears to be soothed and they want them to be medicated. And he's encouraging him, hey, don't let the fact that you're young get in the way of that. Come at it and teach it. Why does he give him such an encouragement? Because here's the beauty. Is, is truth absolute? We would all say yes, right? And so if truth is absolute, it doesn't matter if you're 17 or 50. Two plus two is four no matter how old you are, correct? Okay, so here's the other part of that. Two plus two is four whether you say it really sweet and nice or you say it really angry and mean. 
It never changes the fact that two plus two is four. And the problem what happens in a church is if the preacher says it very angry, then people don't want to listen. Because all of a sudden, the tone changes the message. And if they say it really sweet, then it must be true. And so that's why, you know, from time to time, I will name names uh, of people and say, hey, you need to watch out. You know, one of the times I got some complaints, I mentioned Joel Osteen. And they're like, well, why would you name him as a heretic? Because last time I preached about health, wealth, and prosperity, someone gave me a book from Joel Osteen and said, Pastor, this is exactly what you're talking about. You'd love it. And I had to tell him, no, that's exactly the guy I was talking against. And you want to know their response? But he's so nice. And he's so sweet. And he just speaks so well. And he cares so much. Unless you ask to use his church, right? But if you guys can research that one. But it's like, well, no, just because the tone is nice and the message is packaged, it doesn't mean the message is true. And this is why Timothy is being told to his church, hey, you got to reprove, you got to rebuke. Just because you're young, it's not an excuse. I know for some of you, I don't look old enough to be up here, and that's fine. But the reality is, we're not focused on the person. It's, is the Bible being taught? And if it's being taught, then we can be corrected, we can be rebuked, and we can be you know, taught things we're supposed to do. One of the tragedies in the church is that there are a lot of pastors, they do fail. They have moral failures from addictions to adulteries to just being jerks. But their character never changes the word of God. We never have an excuse to not take the plain reading of scripture on face value. And that's been, this, that's been one of the saddest things is that people say, oh, I don't, I don't, believe that's true. That guy cheated on his wife. It doesn't matter if you're an adulterer or you're addicted to alcohol. It doesn't change two plus two is four. Is that fair? Okay, so if the Bible, if we're saying that's our standard of truth, we have to understand it's always true no matter what's happening to the person delivering it. It's true regardless, and its purpose is to instruct us. And what happens in our culture, and this is why it's a warning, He's saying they're going to want to wander off into myths. They're going to reject sound teaching. Um, look at verse 3. It says, The time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but have itching ears. They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. They'll turn away from listening to the truth, and they'll wander off into myths. And kind of where our culture has gone is they want to be affirmed. They want to be applauded. They want to be agreed with. And they want nothing to get in the way. And so it's saying when the, when the Bible is being taught and it's going against what you need, people are going to wander and go where their ears are itched. Think of it this way. Jesus says clearly that he is the great physician, that he came to heal the sick, right? That he is the one everyone needs. He is the cure for sin. And what the world is going to say is you have an itch, scratch harder, scratch harder, scratch harder. And you're like, oh, it feels so good. But then when you look down, you're bleeding, you're infected, and you're worse than when you started. And what God's word is going to say is you have to ignore that temptation. You have to do the hard thing, go to Christ. Then it's not maybe going to happen the way you want or as fast as you want, but it is ultimately what's best for you. And that's one of the reasons we don't like looking at the Bible sometimes is it comes off like it's the anti-fun book instead of looking at, no, it's actually what's best for you book. 
is to what's absolutely what you need for all of life, for godliness, conduct, purpose, finality, beginning, and everything in between. And so to understand that the world is not our friend. All right, just look at kind of how um, the world's laid out. If you think of postmodernism, right, the rejection of absolute truth, there's no such thing as absolute truth, even though it's an absolute statement. It has kind of come to an end, and Christianity got to exist in there. It was one of many options, right? It was possibly true. Now what they're saying is, you know what? We want things to be absolute, and Christianity is now becoming absolutely false because it disagrees with the way they view marriage. It disagrees that Jesus is the only way to God. It disagrees about gender. It disagrees about what's adultery. It disagrees about marriage, about divorce. You see how wide the gap is? So at some point, they had to start saying, you know what, we no longer view that as valid. It is no longer the 1940s, 1950s, when you can assume that a Christian ethic or a Christian moralism is also the same moral standard that the world has. So then what's the next charge for us? To be sober, to have a sober mind. Verse 5, as for you, always be sober-minded. People will turn away from the truth. So here's what we have to know. The world is always going to teach contrary to Scripture. And it'll use certain tidbits like, isn't this loving? Isn't this life-giving? Isn't this going to help people thrive, help people succeed, help, you know, whatever that is. And our itching ears go like, that seems right. That seems fun. And so it's important, you know, from where the world was to where it is now, I think the only thing we agree with the world is that murder is wrong. We disagree about marriage. We disagree about addiction. We disagree about the author of life. We disagree about the sanctity of life. We disagree about just about everything. True? And so it's important we see to keep a sober mind. The world is not our friend. And the Bible uses very specific language. We're going to walk through a couple passages here and see the language it uses. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. It says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So who does it basically say is the prince of the world? Satan. Absolutely. So why would the world ever agree with us? Is Satan our enemy or our friend? His enemy. What's his tool he uses? The world. Verse 3, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. The Bible does not put non-Christians in a nice fashion, does it? It says they're children of wrath of the world which Satan is the prince of. That's pretty straightforward, isn't it? And he's warning, saying when you set your mind on the things of the world, you're acting like pre-Christ, like you're not saved. You're a child of wrath, not a child of God. And you're working within Satan's domain, not God's. That's pretty exact language, isn't it? So we have to be very aware when the world's teaching us about philosophy, about humanity, about social justice, they have different intentions. And you can try to help people for ungodly reasons and for ungodly gain. Right? And so the, 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 the intent of it matters deeply. First Peter 5, 8 through 9. Again, watch the language. Be sober-minded. Don't get drunk in your mind. Be 
watchful. Pay attention. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion. Notice it doesn't say puppy, right? A roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced around the brotherhood and throughout the world. So Satan is a lion, and he's going to try to devour Christians. So what happens is, if you look up in here, in 5, be sober-minded and endure suffering. When suffering happens, we have pain. When pain happens, we want pain to go away. And what Satan will do is offer the world's goods to medicate the pain and say, you don't want Jesus, you need Satan. But he, right? How many heretics walk around with pitchforks and knives and say, come, I'll help you? No, they wear nice suits and they say things nice and they talk sweet and they talk about things in a very sweet way so it doesn't seem mean and it doesn't seem wrong. But ultimately, it doesn't help you. It's not the medicine we need. And it makes the wound bigger. It infects us and it makes our problems worse. And so it's why it's saying, hey, be sober-minded. The world will not fix your problems. Okay, and just like we talked, the world is not your friend. We also have to remember that Christians, we sin too, correct? And so just, so, just because we, we see it not working in other Christians doesn't mean Christ doesn't work. It means that person sinned and it didn't work. Right? Think of Eve. What does Satan essentially do to her? Did God really say that? God's withholding from you. There's something better. There's something better than God. And that's that you can be like God. And she's drawn away from that. And she goes, look at David, God, man after God's own heart. He's drawn away, but I don't have her. That's one thing I haven't conquered. I haven't done that. Satan says, yeah, you'd be a better king, better man, more authority, better respected, right? That that's the medicine. Go get it. It'll help you. Samson, Peter, men all throughout the Bible fall short. Just true? Okay, so just because men fall short doesn't mean God doesn't work. It means we sin. And this becomes the argument for people. Well, that, that pastor failed. That person sinned. That person is an addict. It doesn't mean that Christians don't sin and Christians don't get deceived. The word of God is always, always true. Be sober-minded. Don't let pain and suffering change you or trick you. Jesus is always better. Jesus is always, always, always better. But that means we have to endure sound teaching. That means we have to be rebuked and changed. That means we have to be told, you know, your kids can't be your Jesus. Your spouse can't be your Jesus. Your job can't be your Jesus. Your bank account can't be your Jesus. Your politics can't be your Jesus. And you're like, wait, what? Those are good things. But you can't love them more than Christ. I mean, you want me to love them less? I don't want to do that. Can't I love them as much as I love Christ? And it's like, they're not going to help the itch. It's just going to make it worse. So keep working your way through this. Verse 5, for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of the evangelist, full of your ministry. What's the work of the evangelist? He teaches Christ, he teaches his word, but he teaches what Jesus actually did. How does the world try to pollute our minds. They start off with the idea of God or Jesus, and they say, well, if you really believe in Jesus, wouldn't there not be poverty? 
Wouldn't evil not exist? Wouldn't COVID go away? Wouldn't there be these bad things? And so clearly that's what God wants. If God is love, he'd want you to be happy, wouldn't he? Would he really care about who you're married to? Would he really care about how you identify? Would he really, Jesus came, he was very kind, he was compassionate, and he loved people. Isn't that how you would see Jesus? So they use part of Jesus, the loving part, and they use it to read all things. Well, let's look at the Gospels. Does Jesus heal every person? It's not a trick question. No. Very plainly, it says he walked away with people still needing to be healed. Did Jesus free every prisoner? Look no further than John the Baptist. What is he called? The greatest man born of a woman. And when he asks if he gets out of prison, what does Christ say? No, you're staying. Does he take away the poverty in, in the Gospels? They're still poor people, right? So, so these are things Jesus never did, never said, but did they get imposed on him? And all of a sudden we change him. We change what he did. We change his mission. He said he came to, what? Do the will of the Father. Become the payment for sins that we could not. To be the lamb, the sacrifice, the payment. To rise from the dead, to conquer sin and death. That was the mission. And so when we divorce Christ from what he actually does, we create a new Christ. And then we get on these uh, missions that Christ never called us to. To worship things that don't work and to worship things that make us feel good, but ultimately leave us lacking. Right? It preys on our insecurities, our anger, our fear, our anxiety. And it says, God doesn't want you to feel like that. He wants you to feel happy. Give me a verse that says he wants you to be happy. I can give you lots of verses that he wants us to be holy, sanctified, obedient, pick up our cross and bear, to be patient. Lots of verses like that, true? Okay, and so it's like, you, God wouldn't want you to have to have a hard time. It's like, well, did Jesus have a hard time? Yeah, well, that's God's son. So what makes us different? Okay, so this is, again, this is keeping a sober mind is keeping in mind that Jesus is, is better, nothing's greater than Jesus, and God's word is always the standard we need. Okay, look again, we're going to be in 2 Timothy 3.16. It says, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. All scripture, not some scripture. Do we see that? All scriptures God breathed. And it's profitable and it's to teach and to reproof and to correct and train and so what we need to see is the world's telling us to do something is where do i see that in the bible where does the bible tell me that that's how i need to be that's how i need to act does the bible tell me to be fearful does the bible tell me to have anxiety does the bible tell me to fix poverty does the bible tell me that I can marry whoever I want? Does the Bible tell me I can pick my gender? Does the Bible tell me that I need to fix the government? Those are fair questions to ask of the Bible, true? Okay, because it's saying all scripture is profitable. Okay, let me walk you through a series of questions. I just want you to think through this, kind of help our minds be sober, for lack of a term. Um, we believe in God, correct? Okay, do we believe that God is the decider, decider of moral truth. Like he's the one who decides what's right and wrong. Yeah, we, do we agree with that? Okay. Now the question would be, is 
that information about right and wrong? Is it written down anywhere? Yeah, is it written down in the Bible? Okay, so if those three, three things are true, truth come, there's God, truth comes from him, and it's written down, then on what basis can we change anything in the Bible? How does it make sense to say there's a God, he makes the truth, he's written it down, but I get to decide which ones apply and which ones don't? That seems pretty irrational, doesn't it? Okay. But that's what we want to do. We want there to be a God because it's comforting. We want to know that he creates right and wrong. It's comforting. But we get to pick and choose which ones we listen to because that makes more sense to us. And then it becomes, well, I don't understand. Why do, why do people go to hell? And if there's a hell, I can't believe in God. Whoa, whoa, whoa. There's a God. He decides. It's written down. Then we get to change things that based on our feelings we don't like. That seems pretty irrational, doesn't it? Okay, but that's what he's saying. They're, gonna, they're not going to endure sound teaching. Their feelings are going to be their facts. And their feelings are going to be what they interpret Scripture, uh, how it feels. And how it seems good. And how they want it to be good. And if God were more like the feelings they desire, then he would be a better God. Well, if God needs us to tell him how to be God, then he's not really God at all, is he? He works for us. Okay? Another way to think through this, just kind of, I'm trying to help our minds be sober, so just work with me on this. You know, what does it take for there to be a truth giver? I want you to think about this. Does truth need to be transcendent? Like, does it need to work in just America, or does it need to work in Africa and Uganda? Oh, that's in Africa, sorry. In Japan and China. and that. Does it need to work everywhere? It does, okay. Does it need to be timeless? Does it need to work 40 years prior and 40 years after? Okay. So if truth needs to be transcendent, works everywhere, and it needs to be timeless, eternal, or infinite, pick your word, then who's the only one who fits the definitions to, to do that? God. The problem is we don't like what he says. And that's the absolute truth that we need to wrap our heads around is that the plain reading of Scripture, it tells us marriage is between a man and a woman. It tells us there's male and female. It tells us not to divorce. It tells us not to get addicted. It tells us not to love money. It tells us to worship Christ only. It tells us to forgive. Right? It tells us all those things, right? But then we magically go, well, no, I don't like that one. That one seems mean. That seems angry. The preacher was yelling when he said that, so God couldn't have meant it. It was written 2,000 years ago, so a part about heaven and hell, that part, that works for 2,000 years, but the institution of marriage, that God couldn't tell us how to do that one. He could tell us how to come to church, how to structure church, how to come to Christ, how to pray, how to repent, but he couldn't tell us about marriage. He was just really restricted by, you know, that generation. They had him on lockdown. Couldn't communicate in a way that would transcend. See what I'm getting at? All scriptures God breathed. And the second we think that we pick and choose our passages, we become drunk and polluted in our mind. And we start to itch and scratch in a way that's not helpful or profitable. Yeah. So there has to be a part of us that's saying, you know what? It might go against my feelings, but I'm not going to verse 4 turn away from the truth. I'm not going to ignore historical Christianity. Isn't that a fair question? If it worked for 2,000 years as absolute, why is it now all of a sudden 
We just found out it was wrong. Isn't that a fair question? Yeah. And, and here's the thing. It always starts with inerrancy. You start getting rid of God's word is perfect. And the word inerrant means it, it's perfect in, in not just life, practice, and godliness. That's infallibility. But it's also perfect in history and science. So you get word of the inerrancy word, and it's like, well, that was history-bound, culture-bound, time-bound. So then we get rid of, take your pick. You get rid of the household, right? There's not a distinction between a husband and a wife. We don't like that. Then you get rid of that. Well, there's not a distinction between husband and wife. There's not a distinction between male and female. Then there's no male and female. Then it's just people. Well, then if it's just people, then there's no gender. See how it keeps trickling down? And then each group gets more mad at the next group. But we never meant to say same-sex marriage, and we never meant to say there could be no gender, and we never meant to say, and we never meant to say. See, the Word of God is infallible. It is perfect. It is inerrant. It is what we use for life and godliness, for history. It's what we are rebuked, reproved, and corrected by. And just because we articulate what God's Word says it doesn't mean we don't care about the people who disagree with it. That's where it's like, if you disagree with what I'm saying, you hate me. And it's like, no, I don't hate you. We actually love you. It's that God's word has something better for you. But if we don't truly believe that God's word's absolute, then we will, verse four, wander off into myths. We're gonna believe the world You'd be more happy if you could pick your sexual identity, if you could leave that wife, leave that husband, ignore those kids. If you could realize that you're a victim, daddy didn't love you and mommy didn't nurture you, it's their fault. It's not your fault. People owe you money, privileges, housing. They owe you these things. It's not your fault. And you're like, oh, yeah. Itching the scratch. Oh. I'm a victim, I'm a victim. What does the Bible say? We're sinners and we need Christ. Doesn't matter if you're born in China, Afghanistan, poor, rich, you need to repent, follow Jesus, have him as Lord and follow him forever. Everybody's a sinner. They don't wanna hear that. The myth of the victim, I like that. Then it's everyone else's fault and I don't have to take personal responsibility. Now, does that mean that people aren't seriously hurt and injured? Absolutely. But every knee will bow and every tongue will confess whether you were born poor, rich, white, black, smart, not smart. This part of the country, that part of the country, there is no excuse for not bending the knee to Christ. It's that simple. The myth of our feelings dictate our facts. That's a myth. The institution of marriage isn't needed. That's a myth. Jesus isn't the only way to God. That's a myth. Right? There's many, many myths that we wander into. And so the Bible calls us to be sober-minded. Right? The myth of equal outcomes. The reality is some people are smarter than others. Can we say that? Some people jump higher. Some people run faster. Some people were born into a hut. Some people were born in a mansion. Doesn't change the fact that Christ died for anyone who will receive him by faith through grace. That's available to everybody. 
keep the sober mind. Don't wander into the mist. Okay, so then what's the third thing? We need to be ready. Be ready. You can see in the text, he's, he's telling them, be ready because the time is coming. People aren't going to want to endure sound teaching. They're going to want to go and soothe that pain, and they're going to itch and itch and itch. Be ready. What happened in our culture is we got caught off guard. We weren't ready. We weren't ready for America to go crazy and disagree with Christian values. We weren't ready for a pandemic to lock us down and cut off our community. We weren't ready for us to have a lack of biblical teaching and understanding to guide us through hard things. But we can learn from this, can't we? That's why the passage is saying you need to be ready. In season, out of season, whether life is good, know your Bible. Life is bad, know your Bible. Because regardless if the preacher talks fast, talks slow, is really smart or really dumb, the Word of God stands. And it is by the Word of God we find our medicine through Christ. He calls himself the Word. His words are what medicate our souls. So the question becomes for us, Am I willing to come to church, hear God's word, and be corrected? Because that's what it's supposed to do. Am I willing to sit down with someone I love and rebuke or reprove? Reprove means examine. Examine together. Hey, I don't see that in the scripture. Let's look at that together. Is that, is that really that offensive? You know, let's say if we're going to have a serious disagreement, let's let the Bible be our guiding fact. Let's reprove this. Examine it together. Or you know what? I know a verse that directly contradicts that. Explain to me how 1 Timothy or Titus isn't correct. Explain to me how Jesus isn't the only way when he says he's the only way. Those are fair questions, aren't they? And that's what it means to be ready, to, to give an account, to go back to the scripture. And here's the thing. If we're doing it just to be right, we're missing the point. We're doing it because Christ is the medicine we need. And if we truly love people, we'll tell them to stop scratching. It's not helping. It's just making the wound bigger. You need Jesus. You need the forgiveness of sins. You need to repent. You need to submit. You need to love. You need to honor. You need to obey Christ and all he has. That's the only thing that's going to help you. Now, it might mean you have to give up your idol, your passion, your pet project, your insecurity, your addiction, but Jesus is better. And fundamentally, if you don't believe that, then you won't go to the Bible for your truth. You'll take a little bit of Jesus and mix it with a whole lot of the world and call it Christianity. But that's not Christianity. This is why he's admonishing him. I charge you in the presence of God Teach these people. Love these people. They're not going to want to listen. They're not going to want to endure it. They're going to want to wander. They're going to want to pollute their minds. This is why he tells them, he tells Timothy, patiently teach them. The mission in front of us is going to be patiently teach each other the word of God consistently and over and over again. Because it's our, always in our nature to wander, to pollute our minds, and to drift from the truth. Okay. Some questions for us to, to think through as we look here. What is the world currently saying about what we need to be happy? And how is it a lie? Whether it's you're a victim, whether it's politics, 
whether it's running, whether it's anger, whether it's vengeance, whether it's fear, what is it telling you will make you feel better? We got to identify this is part of watching, right? Where we, we see it coming. Two, what makes your ears itch? Like what makes you think, oh, that'll make life better? Is it money in the bank account? Is it health? Is it popularity? Is it your kids getting an education? Like what makes you feel like, oh, so much better? If we don't know what itch we're trying to scratch, then we don't know where in the Bible to look. Is that fair? So you got to kind of, there's got to be a self-awareness that comes with this. Three, are there people in your life that you need to investigate the Bible with? That's the word reprove, cross-examine. Just, man, I love you too much to, to let this go, but I just don't see that in the Bible. Can't that be a loving thing? Because what if they do have a place in the Bible and they're like, oh yeah, look, it's right here. Like, oh my gosh, I didn't know that. Then that helps you out too, right? And so so to be able to do that, it's, it's a loving thing. Four, how are you currently preparing your heart and mind to trust God's word? That's being ready in season. That's being ready out of season. We always got to be ready. And when life is good, that's great, but that doesn't mean we're not a student of God's word. So that we're able to rebuke and defend and we see the world coming like, no, 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 Bible, Bible's clear about that. Bible's clear. We're not going to, nope, I know that. I've been reading that. You'll notice if you commit yourself to reading your Bible, it'll be funny how the things you're reading match the things you're going through. It is absolutely insane. Okay? God will, will do that for us if we commit to reading. You'll see it's always profitable. Last question, how would you explain that Jesus is better than anything that the world offers? Right? So start thinking through that. How would you explain? You know, I, I understand you think, you know, ending poverty, being, being a victim, changing America, that's not going to change the fact that there's sinners going to hell and need Jesus. How would you walk someone through that? Because ultimately people have an itch. The problem is they're scratching it the wrong way. They need Jesus. They need his word because he's the author and creator of life. He's the only one who knows how we ought to live. Amen? Let's pray. God, we love you and we trust you. And we thank you for your sound words here in Timothy. And we pray that we would love your word, that we would have a sober mind, that we would endure suffering for your glory, that we would do the work of an evangelist, that we would not wander off into myths, that we would not shy away from the truth, that we would not accumulate teachers for our own passions, that we would endure the sound teaching that corrects us from your word. Help us do that. Help us love you. Help us be faithful. Uh, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So one of the things uh, we've tried to put an emphasis on this year is to do communion more frequently. Um, we've typically done it once a month, but we're going to move to doing it on the first and the third. A couple reasons. One, we want to give more time and attention to remember what Christ did on the cross. But two, what we've noticed is, you know, our city, people do leave a lot, right? And so sometimes if you miss that first Sunday, you can miss communion for one, two, three, or four months. Like, Man, we just need to be more frequent so that we're constantly reminding people the work of Christ on the cross and the blessing that is and the hope that we have. 
and that we're called in Scripture to remember in that way. And so what we just want to walk through is just like a little bit of a progression in communion, because you can do communion in a wrong way, and the text is going to get there. But it's important, remember, communion should always start with that we are sinful. We've sinned against the holy God. We've sinned against the perfect Christ. And so in that sin, it's important you name the sin. What is it we've done? And how did our sin nail him on that cross? Why did it make it necessary for his blood to be shed for us? And in the process of doing that, hopefully what you'll see is that sin should break our heart. Matthew, James is clear that we should mourn our sin. Be sad that I can't believe that Christ loves me and I still do these things. I'm still in that way. And so as you sit in the mourning and the weeping and thinking through the ways uh, that we've sinned against God, the next part is that we would celebrate that Christ did die for that sin. That sin is paid for. We are forgiven. We are redeemed. There is victory. So we move in a progression from mourning to rejoicing. Right? That's the full scope of, of communion that we're to partake in. So we start with mourning our sin and remembering it, asking for forgiveness, and then we celebrate and we thank and we are uh, excited and we are grateful for the work of Christ on the cross. Okay. You see this kind of thought, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six 26-32. He says, For as often as you eat the bread and drink of the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats or drinks the bread of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. And that's what we're trying to not do. We want to do it in a worthy manner. An unworthy manner is to ignore sin, take the juice, drink, the, eat the bread, and just act like everything's fine. That there was no sin that nailed him to the cross. That we played no active role in it. 28. Let a person examine himself. That's the looking at the sin. Then so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. When people are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we might not be condemned along with the world. So it's saying if we truly judge ourselves in that communion time, Christ We'll see he's already paid for that sin and we'll see what he's done and that we have victory through him. We'll have grateful hearts. And he's saying that's the proper way to do communion. And so some things to think about specifically, even coming out of our passage is, you know, maybe repent for not having a sober mind. You know, thinking that our feelings are more important than Christ's word and commands and imperatives for trying to you know, scratch an itch in a way that's not God-honoring or that isn't Christ? What are things that we've allowed to worry us, give us anxiety, have us have anger, jealousy that we've pursued in order to kind of soothe that itch and it hasn't worked? What are ways we've been ignorant or arrogant to what God's called us to and just missed it? And the last part, you just to ask God to help us remember his word so we might be faithful, not sin against him, be his children and represent him well. If you're not a Christian, we'd ask that you'd let the elements pass or not partake and just focus on who is Christ. 
You know, if I were to die, where would I go? What does it mean to sin? How do my sins get forgiven? And then as the words come up, just reflect on them. So you're going to have time to go through this process. Uh, And then at such a time, John will lead us back into a time of worship. That's our chance to celebrate the work Christ did. Be grateful for the work he did and celebrate communion. So I'm going to pray and you can go ahead and take it uh, in your own time. Remember the bread's on the bottom, juice is on the top. Let's pray. God, we love you. We praise you and we thank you for Jesus. That he loves us, he forgives us, and he died for us. It's our prayer we would uh, focus in on how we've sinned, how we fall short, how we uh, ignore the things you call us to. Pray that that sin would wreck our hearts in a way that cause us to want to change. That you would help us then celebrate the victory of the cross, the forgiveness of sins, the redemption of our bodies, the heaven as our home that you're our Father. May we celebrate these things with you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.